So let's turn to our second keynote speech of the conference. So uh, by Professor Friedman. And this speech, the topic is about changing heroes and the villains of the 1911 revolution. So prof uh, from, uh, Professor, uh, Professor Friedman is from Wisconsin University. And his topic is the changing heroes are villains of 1911 revolution. And he urged us to assess the meaning of the implication of 1911 revolution in a global and a comparative context. So he believes that the biggest difference in the 1911 revolution from other would-be revolution is that the transvaluation of values instead of failed experiments with different political structures in China. So please join me to welcome Professor Friedman from Wisconsin University to deliver the second keynote speech. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Tamawangi <laughs> Uh 对他们，我想是最合适的，我应该呃，中文课程里面已经知道了，我汉语差，汉语言，所以我想是最好，我是跟科比呃，教授一样，我是讲那个英语还是我的母语，请大大家原谅我。呃，before uh, I actually get started, I thought one of the most interesting conversations that occurred this morning, which is not in my paper, but I hope you all caught it. Uh, was how many times the issue of Germany came up. And if you do not know it, both heroes and villains, both Sun Yat-sen and Yuan Shikai both thought of them as themselves as carrying out a German project. Uh, for Sun Yat-sen's notion of socialism, he thought of himself as a socialist, um, his socialism basically was Bismarck's socialism. Uh, they built the railroads, they provided uh, social welfare for everybody, uh, the state facilitated uh, industry. Uh, his socialism, very self-consciously, was a, what he thought of at the time as a German-style socialism. And similarly, if you do not know it, 
Yuan Shikai also identified with Germany. If you remember the conversations made about the new armies, how often they had been sent off to Germany to train, or they brought over offices from Germany. Yuan Shikai thought of uh, the Beiyang military as Prussia inside of uh, China, and Prussia was the hard core of the building of the uh, new Germany. Um, and as a third thing, if you don't know, as life went on for Sun Yat-sen, as he thought back about where Yuan Shikai and then the uh, Junfa, the warlords, were uh, going, uh, Sun Yat-sen uh, came to the conclusion that this militarization of China, he actually called it the Prussianization of China, was a very dangerous direction. And he worried about where this stress on militaries was going to take China. Okay, to get into the actual uh, uh, talk. So I am not uh, a historian of the 1911 revolution or of uh, Zhuhua Mingguo. Um, I am paid as a political uh, scientist, uh, though not nearly as well as I should be. Um, <laughs> and I, I get paid as a comparativist. So the first thing that strikes me in, think, in putting the Chinese 1911 revolution in context is that this is another 100th anniversary in another part of the world. <clears throat> it is the 100th anniversary. This is the first time in 100 years that a monarch from England went to Ireland. That um, after uh, Ireland struggled for its independence and the English responded to them in their usual brutal way, um, it was very difficult for a British monarch to be welcome inside of, uh, inside of uh, Ireland. And if you actually look at anybody's history, uh, in reality, there's always nasty things in the history that patriots do not like to focus upon, such as what the English did to the Irish. Um, and the truth of the matter is that the inheritance from imperial times and also racist attitudes to groups that the ruling entity thinks about as minority groups, these things are pervasive all around the world, including inside of uh, China. Uh, when one talks about most of the things which have supposedly gone wrong or are wrong in China, they almost never reflect anything peculiar about China, sadly. They reflect things about the human species, and it's not a very nice species. Um, and you just have to remember that when you think about the realities of China. And um, one should take hope from places which as horrendous as they were, after all, the French Revolution, which in many ways starts it all, uh, was a, a, a slave-owning uh, empire. And it fought wars in Haiti to re-enslave people who had uh, struggled for their uh, freedom. Uh, those kinds of stories are the stories people don't like to remember. But if you want to get any place's history right, one should try very hard to remember these kinds of things. So the first question about the 1911 revolution for me is, was it a revolution? Was it a revolution? Many people think, many analysts, very intelligent analysts, think it was not a revolution and should not be considered a revolution. That they see it, 1911, as one moment in a long decline of the state. 
perhaps going back at least as far as the White Lotus Rebellion in the uh, 1790s. And the Xinhai Gumming did not stop the decline of the state. As we all know, it's followed by civil war, warlords, and all sorts of other wonderful things. And from this point of view, the end of the decline of the state is Zhongwe Renmingunghagua. And uh, the state is recreated in uh, 1949 by the armies that come to power in 1949. Now, whether that is a revolution or just a rebuilding of a state, you can continue to have a conversation. A lot depends how you understand the word revolution. Now, I actually, for a long time, still do teach courses on revolution and on democratization. And those are going to be the two focuses of what I'm going to chat about is revolution and democratization. Others see the 1911 revolution as a real revolution. And what does that mean that it was a real revolution? Well, it was the case, it was a fact in 1911, I think you only sure hinted at this in his uh, talk, it was a fact that sentiment grew in China, as in every place else in the world, by the late 19th century and into the uh, 20th century, that monarchies were backward, that monarchies were the ancien regime. It was the old way of doing things. And Um, and everybody understood, and I think, again, you actually said this, that, every, that the future progress in the world meant replacing monarchies with republics. That was a given. It was almost not debatable that the way that the future should go, as understood in that time, was that republics should replace monarchies. And what did they mean by republics? They saw monarchies as places where blood and loyalty decided your future opportunities. And a republic was a place which, where careers were open to talents. You should be able to go as far as your energies, your education, your enterprise would allow you to go. And that should be open to everyone in the society. It should no longer be a society of statuses. Um, and that was a revolutionary thought. That is the transvaluation of, value, of values. That is the real revolution. That is the idea in people's heads, which makes them think that there is an ancien regime that should re be replaced, and there is a new project for modern people. Now, you can make an argument again whether China has yet succeeded in that revolution. Because as much as careers are more open to talent, as we know, it really remains the case that the first value of the party state is loyalty to the party state. And that is the old feudal value that is not uh, what is usually considered uh, the uh, modern value. So the issue of whether there was a 1911 revolution can be asked in many different ways. As you all know, the official story is it was a failed bourgeois revolution, and then we have the socialist revolution that succeeded. And since you all can decide whether China is or isn't socialist, I'm not going to go in that uh, direction. 
The real question I do want to ask and will ask is why did the opening to democracy, which was given in 1911, which as Professor Kirby pointed out, led to a fantastic nationwide election to a national parliament, why was it so easily, so quickly closed down? And in answering that, kind, that question, I am going to do just what the introducer says. I will ask you to think about 1911 in both international and comparative context. Why? Because the world is really going to be changed by the First World War and the Bolshevik Revolution. And how people in, with political goals will understand the world and act in the world after the First World War and the 1911 Revolution is going to be very, very different from the era before the First World War and the Bolshevik Revolution. It would no longer be the case that people will be saying to themselves, we have two choices, do you want a monarchy or do you want a republic? They will talk about politics in a very different kind of way. Not only is the international situation of this pre-World War I period very, very different, but you can see the, con the consequences of it, not just in China, but in many other countries in the world. In this pre-World War I period, there were a number of democratic revolutions. Uh, Russia, Iran, Turkey, Portugal, Mexico, and others, and all of them very quickly lost. So that leads to a comparative question. The question, uh, and a comparative question which I think has international relations consequences. The question is not, tell us about Chinese history so I can understand the peculiarities about Chinese history. The question becomes, tell me where China, part of this world, why it, like the rest of the places which had these democratic revolutions in that period, were so easily uh, defeated. So the kind of answer that I'm looking for is not going to be an answer about Sun Yat-sen's failings or something like that. The big question is what made it so easy for conservative forces in all of these places that were afraid of democratic forces, what made it so easy for them in this period where there really were no ideological challenges to the Democratic Republic, how come they could still so easily crush a democratic uh, republic? Now, to give you a feeling very quickly about the change that will occur after the First World War and the Bolshevik Revolution, people will see the world very differently. Before World War I, there's a vision as with the vision of Europe having all the great universities and all the science. And if you don't know, in that period, Americans are thought of, including even Harvard, as uncultivated savages who have no real culture uh, at all. And um, during uh, this, uh, this period, uh, one had a vision of Europe of having 100 years of peace, that since the end of the Napoleonic Wars, commerce had spread, and commerce was the opposite of the militarism of feudalism. And so as, as you defeat feudalism, a vision of nobles on horseback with lances, people who are loyal to the monarch and go off and fight wars all the time because 
That's, they have nothing better to do with their time. Now in a world where you can go and make money and everybody can get richer, you have a notion of sweet commerce, as it was called. And out of commerce would not just come liberty, middle classes, educated urbanites who would defend their interests, would not just come liberty, but which also would come peace. It was the end of the era of wars. And what is more delicious than peace? So wealth, freedom, and peace, all were supposed to be the consequences of this, the commercial civilization that was growing inside of Europe. And then World War I and the Bolshevik Revolution happened. And people rethink these categories. And commerce is no longer commerce, it's capitalism. And capitalism is not just capitalism, capitalism is the source of imperialism. And imperialism is not just a system that exploits. It leads capitalist imperialist countries to fight all over the world to control markets. And so commerce, rather than being sweet, is about the most bitter fruit in the world. It leads on to not only exploitation, but war. And liberty disappears as a fraud. So in the post-World War I world, democracy is not attractive. It almost doesn't even seem a category. Um, and after World War I and the Bolshevik Revolution, the two dynamic forces in the world that people will see themselves as having to choose are what I would call Leninist-Stalinism, um, socialism, state socialism on the one hand, and on the other hand, fascism. And democracy really was endangered in this uh, particular, uh, in this particular uh, period. Another reason that was endangered was because of the ideas in the heads of the people in the liberal democracies. They believed in what was called classical economics. And classical economics, what we today would call neoliberalism, classical economics really had no role for the state in the economy. The state in the economy, mercantilism, from a European point of view, totally misunderstanding Germany, totally misunderstanding what was happening in Meiji Japan, but nonetheless it was the dominant ideology, was that the state was a source of rentals. It was where corrupt people got rich. And the only way you grew the economy was through free enterprise. And so in the 1920s, as various economic problems began to hit Europe, the one thing you would not do in classical economics was to have the state intervene in the economy. So that fascist states and communist states seemed the better solution. And that whole conversation before World War I, it just disappears. And that clarifies for us a very important fact. If you want to understand possibilities for either revolution or democracy, it is important to understand what Hegel would have said makes for the zeitgeist, the spirit of an era. And the spirit of an era, it's really not an ethereal thing. It reflects these real world changes and how they shape as people understand possibilities. Now, as it turns out, um, 
when I received my dissertation 44 years ago for this uh, 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 thesis on the failure of the 1911 revolution, when I finished writing it, I realized I had done it all wrong. Fortunately, my teachers didn't understand. <laughs> and the correct way to have done it would have been in the comparative way that I just described. And so I always said to myself that I was going to learn about those other democratic revolutions and how they failed, and then I would pr present the 1911 revolution in proper historical context. Well, somehow I never got around to learning about those other five revolutions. And my dissertation sat on some shelf in the Widener Library, where I assume it's been microfished and put on other kinds of things ever since. Um, and then in 2008, a political scientist, a comparativist, I think at Virginia, published a book from Harvard University Press doing exactly what I thought should be done. The fellow's name is Charles Kurzman. The book is called Democracy Denied, 1905-1915. And the son of a gun does everything that I thought 44 years ago you should do. Um, so I can't complain, right, that he actually did it and I sat on my haunches and did uh, nothing. And it's a very, very good book. I hate to say that. Um, <laughs> and I recommend it to you all. He's also very kind to my dissertation in the, uh, in the book. In fact, uh, the stuff on China is basically all taken from my dissertation. But he has his own views as to what is right and wrong in understanding the issue I just put before you. Um, and so what I'd like to do for the rest of my time is four things. One, I'm going to introduce you Kurzman's theory and put the 1911 revolution in this comparative context. And then I'm going to try to correct his theory, at least I think I'm correcting his theory, and explain why the kind of view I've already been presenting to you in which you want to look at things so what's happening in the international world is a better way of understanding what's uh, going on. Third, I'm going to then remind you of the conventional wisdom on the topic of the 1911 re revolution, which you really all know, heroes and villain, villains. Sun Yat-sen's the hero, Yuan Shikaya is the villain. And then finally, fourth, I'm going to try to make a prediction. I'm going to tell you where I think the official story about heroes and villains in the 1911 revolution is going to go in China. Now, that is always a dangerous thing to do, the truth of us. The truth is nobody knows the future. Futures cannot uh, be predicted. Um, so to make my prediction uh, really, really risky, I'm going to predict that my predictions will come true within one year. Um, and that you will see these changes inside of uh, China. Um, and that you will see all sorts of uh, changes in how the 1911 revolution, the tr how the classic story is going to go by uh, the boards. So uh, in terms of that classic story, just so you all remember, I'm sure you all do, it's that Yuan Shikai's people um, not wanting the parliament to meet uh, have the person who would have become the premier of China, Sung Jiao Ren, assassinated. They then dismiss the parliament. They ban the Nationalist Party, Zhongguo Guomindang, and they defeat these new militaries, which you heard referred to before, that are in the south. Basically, the south seriously supported the republic, 
and the North was far more conservative. Some people would say nothing changes in China. Um, and Sun Yat-sen and Democrats are forced into exile. Um, so it's a very fast defeat of the United, of these uh, democratic uh, revolutions. And I say it is the same course that you will find in all of these other democratic uh, revolutions. So um, what is the Kurzman's explanation and then what is my explanation of these events? First, Kurzman's theory. As you could already see, and people have already called to your attention, that if you are going to be a modern nation state, the, you first have to be able to defend your independence because states are nasty critters and uh, they will impose upon you if you cannot defend yourself. So the most important thing was to build a military. And everybody is building a modern military uh, to defend their independence. And even uh, the Qing is trying to build a modern military. You all know the stories of failures and corruption along the way, but it's committed to building a modern military. And Kurzman then says this, in that era, in fact, going back to what is called the military revolution in Europe in the 16th, 17th century, when you begin to have fleets of ships with hundreds of cannons, which shoot off humongous cannonballs in large numbers, um, war becomes very, very expensive. It is not easy to create a modern military. And as the age of steel comes in the 19th century, war becomes ever more expensive. And it turns out to be the case, Kurzman argues, that the Republican revolutionaries cannot stand against the new militaries. The new militaries have put together a military force which it is just too expensive in that era to create a military force by the Republican revolutionaries to defeat the conservative revolutionaries. If you want to put it another way, something which you can see in what's been going on in the so-called Arab Spring, if the military defends the old order, it's hard to defeat the old order. If the military splits or goes over to the side of the Republican forces, that doesn't happen. And what would be the case in China was that, that basically that the, the northern military forces stood behind the Yuan Shikai uh, government. And in that kind of a situation, the uh, Republican forces in the south are essentially naked to them. They have no way of fighting. And the argument is made by Kurzman that very similar things happen in all of these places, that the old order in some form or another holds the loyalty of the military. Militaries are very expensive. You can't create them on the cheap. The Republican forces can't put together a military. And so indeed, they are easily and quickly defeated. Now my own findings, I said before, is a little bit different than Kurzman's. It is not that I disagree with him that about the importance of the military or the expense of uh, the military but that the New Republicans in all of these places actually very well understood these things. One of the most interesting things about studying the Republicans of, uh, of uh, Qingmuang Minchu, that period, is they're very smart. 
They have really read all the best literature, and I often read it and think they understood it, because it came out of Europe mostly. They understood it much better than Americans understood it uh, during uh, that period. They are uh, very, uh, very intelligent, very analytic, very thoughtful kind of people. So they really understand all of that stuff. Um, and so what they see is now they, they control provincial assemblies, provincial assemblies largely controlled by so-called enlightened gentry, had been growing in the uh, late Qing era. And they, their view was they would get the tax money from these people who had money, and they'd have the ability to pay and equip a modern army. But what would turn out to be the case instead is the merchants and gentry did not like these young Republican educated people. Um, and they did not want to support them. And they refused to pay taxes to them. And so those provincial governments did not have the tax money to raise the army, which would have allowed them to stand up to the northern armies. Why didn't they like these young Republicans? Well. The first thing was they didn't think they were Chinese. That a lot of them, as Professor Kirby told you, went to places like Harvard for their education. And they, they, they were thought of as being brainwashed by foreigners. They were out of touch with Chinese reality. Worse than that, some of them had even become Christians. And being Christians, they clearly had nothing to do with being a true Chinese. And then even on top of that, when they came home, they had all sorts of crazy ideas. They believed in modern universal education. They believed in equal rights for women. They had this totally indecent idea that women and men should be able to sit in the same classroom or the same library or the same movie theater. All of these were outrageous ideas at the time, which showed they were totally un-Chinese. And worse yet, their nationalism seemed to be out of control. It turned out, despite the fact that they had gone off to foreign countries where they were brainwashed, they actually were very strong Chinese patriots. They loved slogans like China for the Chinese. Um, and they very much wanted to promote national industry inside of, uh, inside of China. And among their opponents, not only in the Yuan Shikai government, but in the various uh, provinces, they really were seen as if they were a return of the boxers. They were crazy, irrational, dangerous people. They would alienate the foreigners. They would cause foreign intervention. China would not be able to stand against it. There would be more of those indemnities imposed upon China. And from the point of view, therefore, of these more conservative forces, if you will, the result of allowing these young, educated, foreign, Christian, all sorts of bad terms, equal rights for women, modern education, modern sanitation, ending remnants of slavery, a lot of horrible ideas, um, that uh, you, couldn't, if they, you couldn't let such people stay in power. So this was their situation. What should they do? And they still needed money to raise their army. They didn't just quit. They were very serious about thinking that they really had a modern idea for China and they wanted it to win. So what they did do 
is they turn to foreigners for loans. And during this period, foreign money first and foremost meant British capital. This is the era of the British, the sun never sets on the British Empire. Uh, the city, the financial era, area of uh, London is really the globally powerful center of the financial universe. And if you want to succeed, you have to get your money from Britain. Well, some of you, I doubt anybody in this, uh, in this room, some of you might think that the British being a constitutional uh, government might think they should support the constitutionalist. No way. I think no way for two reasons. Um, one is the foreign services of these places were places where the kids of the old aristocracy took cushy jobs and they hated democracy. Uh, their view was popular elections was mob rule. Uh, their their uh, identity was very much with conservative elite forces. And second, as an economic interest, the British did not need these radical nationalists with China for the Chinese and building up Chinese industry. They'd much rather a Yuan Shikai government which would be, as they saw it, pliant and give in to British economic interests. So the way these people had to rationalize to themselves what they were doing is they came to the conclusion that Chinese were unsuited for democratic government. I will read to you a couple of, of quotes from uh, British embassy officials explaining which way they're going. They, the Chinese, are wholly unfitted for such a government. Apart from the tyrannical attitude of the old government, which will never be otherwise, so long as a Chinaman, it's a racist term, is in control, the Manchu system was the right one for the Chinese. The central idea of government with the iron heel of authority seems best suited for the difficult Chinese. And just one more. Um, uh, that their, their goal is a strong man, and Yuan Shikai would be a strong man. And that's what you really need, is a strong man to guide China. And democracy, which is un-Chinese, uh, would never work in China. And this made a lot of sense to Yuan Shikai and the conservatives around him. Democracy was an alien idea. Um, it has no place in China. It is not suitable for uh, Chinese, uh, Chinese uh, culture, and eventually for him, uh, Confucian culture. Now today, of course, everybody knows such a thing is a silly idea. Everybody is aware that uh, people who come out of Confucian uh, families inside of Taiwan are democratic. People know that people come out of yet more Confucian uh, Japan are democratic. People know that uh, citizens who come out of a super Confucian, I often think the only truly Confucian place in the world, South Korea, are also uh, democratic. Um, so, you know, no one, you all would know that you would never say today some silly thing like uh, if you come out of a Confucian ethos, you would never, uh, uh, you can never have a democracy. But the view of uh, the uh, business people as well as the, uh, the uh, embassies from uh, Europe, and also America, sadly, uh, was, I quote, these military autocrats have made impossible the success of parliamentary government. The sympathy of the Western democracies has been extended to the enemies 
of free government. And that really was uh, the way that it uh, was. So um, there was no way in the world for the young Republicans to win the loans from the British as they wanted to win the loans. Now that was, again, wasn't the end of the battle. These are not stupid people. They understand the balance of forces inside of China. And so people like Sun Yat-sen and Huang Xing and even Hu Hanmin down in uh, Guangzhou, they come to the conclusion that there's no way in the world that Yuan Shikai's conservatives would ever allow a democratically elected parliament to take power. That there's no way they're surrendering their control over these ministries, the treasury, the wealth, and so on. They're not going to let it occur. And so they all make approaches to the Yuan Shikai government to try to put together some kind of a coalition force. In the mainstream literature on the 1911 revolution, this is usually presented as Sun Yat-sen, Huang Xing, Hu Hanmin, they're power-hungry people, they don't want Sung Jiao-ren's parliamentary forces uh, to win, they're jealous of uh, Sung Jiao-ren. I don't think that it's true. Uh, I think that, by the way, for all politicians everywhere, whatever your political system, they can't imagine anything better than them being in power, so it doesn't tell you anything special. But I think they recognize the reality that Yuan and his military and his British loan were not going to concede and you had to make a deal. And they tried to make a deal. Okay. So this takes us to the issue of the old mainstream history. The old mainstream history, which I hope I've already complicated a little bit, is that Sun Yat-sen is the hero. He's the father of the republic. He's the supporter of a modern China. He's in league with the true patriots. That Yuan Shikai is the villain. He's out to destroy the progressive forces. He's out to destroy uh, democracy. Um, and what, when he wins, it, it's just a disaster for uh, China. The bad guys win, the good guys lose. That's the basic story of the 1911 revolution. Now, I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. Among other things, that given the actual forces that existed in China, even the people who supported democracy and the parliament couldn't help but see that it wasn't working, that it didn't have the power, that the conservative forces who controlled ministries and money were just not going to allow this to happen. And so it is a fact that in many ways, parliament in this period became a talking shop because it didn't have the power to do any kind of things. And they would wrangle about nothing. This is Sun Yat-sen at that time. It is an open secret that the country is disappointed with the parliament. The weakness and irreconcilable, not to say inflammatory opposition of its various constituents towards each other have been contributing to the present national uh, impasse. Um, and so, uh, Yuan Weisha has told me, last time I visited him at uh, Jungshan Dasya, that his researchers suggest that it wasn't just Yuan Shikai who was plotting the death of uh, Sung Jiao Ren, who would have been the uh, prime minister, but people who would become close to Jiang Kai-shek also thought that Sung was out of touch with reality and would lead to boomerang kinds of things, and they were implicated in the assassination also. Um, so, 
the reality of the turning away from democracy, given the forces that were against them, is actually very understandable. But the key thing is to focus on the forces that were um, against them at this particular time. Another thing that worked against them was their brilliant understanding of democratic theory of the time. And I really do mean brilliant. The problem was that European democratic theory was not very good. And European democratic theory at that time essentially said that a democracy is a place where the parliament controls the taxes. It's a country of no taxation without representation, and the representatives should control the taxation. And so the basic goal was to control parliament, control taxation, and everybody would live happily ever after. And there's really no examination in the democracy literature of that period of what actually the, the real political forces at work. Here's Yen Fu saying those kinds of uh, things. Um, parliament traces back to its taxpaying function. It is precisely here that we must seek the basis of the growth of popular rights. Liang Chi Chao. If history taught anything, it was that representative government originated from tax problems. But, by the way, they're totally correct that that is exactly what uh, the literature said at the time. So much so that when Sun Yat-sen, for his short time as a temporary president, um, issues his first manifesto, he listed the grievances against the Anshan regime. And the first one is just from the American Declaration of Independence of no taxation without representation. And it says, quote, they have levied irregular and unwholesome taxes upon us without our consent. It's basically taken out of, uh, if you will, this literature. The real problem was the one that I told you, that given the real political forces inside of China, people with wealth were not going to pay uh, the, uh, the taxes. So they then had to legitimate their authoritarian regime. Yuan Shikai first, Chiang Kai-shek next, but they had to, and they, they legitimated all in the same way, the way we've already been hinting at. They wanted to say Chinese culture has no place for democracy. From Chiang Kai-shek's point of view, uh, liberalism and communism, by the way, from a, a fascist point of view, liberalism and communism are the same thing, that liberals are communists who are in camouflage, but their secret project is going to be atheism and all state power and so on. Anyway, uh, Chiang Kai-shek, if you read China's Destiny, makes clear that liberalism and communism were fundamentally incompatible with the psychology and disposition of our uh, nation. In response to this, the, from both liberals and communists in China, I'll quote Ai Suqi, who I believe is Father Ai Weiwei, right? who was a uh, Communist Party political philosopher writing in 1940 against the Chiang Kai-shek defense of authoritarianism as reflecting the peculiar characteristics of Chinese culture and there are no universal ba uh, values. Ai Suqi writes in 1940 for the Communist Party, all reactionary thought in contemporary China is of the same tradition. It emphasizes China's national characteristics harps on China's special nature, and wipes aside the general principles of humanity, arguing that China's development can only follow China's own path. Um, and indeed, the Communist Party's doctrines and institutions 
all come from, the pictures of the four beards used to show it, uh, did not come from Laozi and Confucius. Uh, they came from other kinds of places because these were universally applicable kinds of, uh, kinds of things. Now, we all know, again, the world has changed. The world today, the international world, is very different than it was in the pre-World War I period, and it's very different than it was in the period after World War I. And the differences matter very much. Just think of China today. China is not a beggar nation. China is not down on its knees thinking about what concessions it has to make to get loans from Britain. The Europeans are looking for loans. And China has $3.2 trillion in foreign exchange. It is a different world. That different world is going to set up different possibilities for the world. And the most interesting thing about all of this to me is how British finance is really hurt by World War I. And although it really does come back in many ways in the city, in the city of London in the uh, 1980s, it, after World War I, it's never the same global force that it was in World War I. So the British don't have impacts, and they're inconsequential for the kinds of questions we are asking. And it's a measure of how important the different nature of the global, the international situation is for domestic possibilities that you would want to have. It is also, I think, the case today that since the financial crisis here in the United States and the spread to the European Union, and Japan essentially being in economic doldrums for now 20 years, and China and OPEC countries seeming to be great economic successes, um, there is a view in the world, I think, that once again, as in the post-World War I world, democracy is in trouble globally. That democracy no longer delivers the goods. That democracies cannot solve problems um, as in the post-World War I period. The alternatives are no longer fascism uh, versus uh, Stalinism, if you will. But I think it remains, it is again the case, if you will, that it is not so easy in the world today, not just China, it is not so easy in the world today, given these larger economic forces and economic events, it is not so easy to be persuasive as a promoter of human dignity, human rights, and human freedom. Which gets me to the final point I want to uh, make, which I think it's rather obvious from everything that we have said. That in many ways, if you will, China and Britain have changed places. That China and Britain have changed uh, places. Um, that while on the one hand, our knowledge of democracy and democratization is much better. For example, anybody trying to democratize today would be very aware of the importance of the military forces, would be very aware that if you're going to democratize, you have to make some deal where the conservative forces do not just think of themselves as losers. They would be very aware, they would think about how Pinochet's dictatorship, say, ended in Chile, and they would be very aware 
that you may even have to go as far as creating what are called in the literature authoritarian enclaves. That the Democrats said to Pinochet's uh, military, said, A, you will never be persecuted for any crime you ever committed. Total amnesty for all of you. Second, you have an arena which is totally yours. Control your own military, control your own budget, control your own promotions, control your own military industries. In democratizing, we are not trying to destroy your basis of getting on with your life and taking care of your families and living as an honorable kind of person. In other words, if you are engaged in trying to create what in the literature is called a democratic pact today, you wouldn't start off with Sung Jiao Ren's vision of democracy is I want a parliament which has all the power. You would not think of that. You would understand that if the conservative forces are strong, I have to make a deal. And the deal is going to mean that my democracy is not a complete democracy. That is the, the quality of the democracy will be pretty low. It will be pretty flawed. It will not be very robust. But it is very important to make the institutional break. And I would be willing to make all sorts of compromises and concessions to get to that particular position. If you go back to 1911, and I say they really, really were aware of the best dem dem democratic theory that existed at the time, such thinking simply did not exist at the time. You did not look back at England and say, oh my god, it really wasn't much of a democracy actually, if you look at it in 1688, or you say, look at America in 1788, you know, actually about 8% of adults were uh, allowed to uh, vote. Um, you would go back today and you would notice how incomplete the democracies were, but that isn't how it was seen in 1911. So um, you obviously, you learn things, your views change. The values can be the same, but hopefully you're wiser in doing kinds of things. But one thing, and it, I think in terms of the change of heroes and villain, villains, is most clear. That is, I would ask the question, are, is Sun Yat-sen really today's hero of the 1911 revolution? And I think the answer is no. I think that in reality, Sun Yat-sen is very useful for United Front appeals to Taiwan, who, as uh, Professor Kirby pointed out, the Guomindang still takes Sun Yat-sen as its father. And so Sun Yat-sen is a very useful uh, political person for uh, Communist Party political purposes. Presenting Sun Yat-sen as someone who believed in one China is really, really a little iffy. Um, first of all, in terms of today's Chinese Communist Party view of the nation, Sun Yat-sen never was upset that Taiwan was a Japanese uh, colony. Taiwan had never been, Taiwan had never been ruled by a sinicized government on the mainland of China. Not only wasn't he uh, upset by it, but he went and spoke to the governor of Japan and to get his backing to overthrow the Manchus, he offered him a big chunk of Fujian province too. And then when he turned against Yuan Shikai, and Yuan Shikai was going to get these loans from the British, he tried to make a deal with 
Japanese banks, actually it was the Taiwan Inhang, it was a Japanese bank at that time in uh, Taiwan, in which he essentially offered Manchuria, as it was then, uh, the uh, Dungbei, to uh, them in return for support. And if someone criticized him for doing these things, Sun's response was, the, the rest was the real uh, China. Um, we could get into a discussion with what is the real China, but to use Sun Yat-sen for these purposes towards Taiwan only requires that you forget everything you should know about Sun Yat-sen. Um, so I don't think he really is the hero of the 1911 revolution, in addition to which, as has been pointed out earlier today, he really did believe in a process that would lead to democracy. And he really was Christian influence. He really was full of these alien, from the point of view of the Chinese government today, alien ideas. He was very un-Chinese. He's really unsuitable, if you think about it, for what the ruling group in China would like today. But not Yuan Shikai. I mean, who was Yuan Shikai? He was a fellow who saw that democracy was alien to China. He was a guy who deeply respected Chinese and especially Confucian values, especially because they supposedly were anti-democratic. He was a wise and experienced leader. He wasn't one of these young hotheads full of these dangerous foreign ideas. He's the kind of person who should rule. He got the Manchus to leave power to abdicate the throne with virtually no violence at all, except for pogroms against Manchus, which killed thousands of people. Um, but that wasn't his doing. That wasn't his uh, doing. And he maintained, uh, as Professor Kirby said about the Empress Dowager too, with the exception of Mongolia, he basically maintained a united China. So here is my prediction. I said I would end with predictions. Given the realities of heroes and villains, and given the preferences of rulers in China today, it is obvious to me that increasingly, for ruling groups in China today, the real hero of the 1911 revolution is Yuan Shikai. And my prediction is that we will see biographies published in China by next year, uh, I said I'd do it within one year, which will be very, very strongly pro Yuan Shikai and what he did in this period. I would further predict, therefore, that his hometown is going to be highlighted as a tourist attraction, and they will be... <laughs> I mean, this is today's China. <laughs> and they will look forward to making money on the tourism with their uh, new, uh, new hero. That, this simple point I want to make is one of trading places, trading places. The world has changed. As Britain and China have changed places, so Yuan Shikai and Sun Yat-sen are changing places, that heroes and villains are much more changeable than we would like to believe. I'll stop.